God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. I thank you for all that you've done to invite us to a relationship with you and to provide for that relationship. I thank you for your work uh, in this community, and I thank you for the great privilege of being able to be part of that, to be called by you uh, into uh, gospel ministry. And we pray that, that you would now, as we open your word, uh, help us to understand who you are better and what it means for us to live uh, as your people uh, everywhere we are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so a few weeks ago, uh, our family decided that we would watch a movie together. Um, so we watched uh, the animated film uh, WALL-E. Maybe a few of you have watched it. We would definitely recommend it. We had fun. And like just about every movie, it kind of uh, builds uh, to the tension, to this, this climactic moment, and then uh, you see what happens there, and then kind of the good guys win, and you get the resolution. So uh, in this particular movie, uh, it's building up to this point where you're wondering, well, how is this going to work out? And, and of course, the really exciting part of the movie is when there's still the tension, and you're not quite sure how things are going to resolve. You don't know how the, the good guy robots are going to beat the bad guy robots, and in and that moment, it's, it's kind of intense. I, I see my kids sitting at the edge of their seat, and the, the music is faster and louder, and, and no one's taking potty breaks at this point. No one's asking for more popcorn. They are glued to the screen because they want to know, how is this, what's going to happen here? Are they going to win or not? And of course, it's a, it's a Disney movie, so it turns out well, and, and all the good guys win, and, and everything then from then on is just kind of the resolution of uh, the movie. And, and after that, it kind of loses the same kind of intensity. The kids kind of sit back. They, they take their bathroom breaks. They eat their popcorn and all that. And filmmakers know, of course, that you can't make that resolution part of the story too long because you're going to lose your audience's interest. And so they've got to make that pretty short and really have the, the build-up in the first uh, part of the movie. So we're watching Wally, and uh, the movie ends, or what I consider the end of the movie, and the credits start rolling. And so I stand up to actually turn it off because that's the sensible thing to do. But my kids are so uh, screen-starved uh, that they actually tell me to keep watching the movie. They, they refuse to let me turn it off until the screen actually goes black. And I'm, I'm looking at it thinking, it's just, it's just words scrolling on a page. And, and they're saying, but their music is still going and there's still some animation going along there. And they're just glued to the screen through what I consider the really, really boring part of the movie. Because we know that like every movie, every story, there's the really exciting stuff and then there's the maybe less exciting stuff. And then there's what my kids like, the, the really, really boring part of it. Today we're going back to uh, finish up our series that we started this spring in the book of Exodus. So we're going way back. This is the second book of the Bible. And what Exodus does is it shows us the story of how God formed this uh, people group, his people, to learn to trust him on the journey that they're on. And as we looked at the beginning of Exodus, we saw some really incredible, exciting stories in, in the, the first part of the book. It starts with, with God's people in slavery. And so this is a really bad situation. They're being worked to death. Their babies are being killed. It's terrible. And so that's the tension. And then God raises up this man named Moses, and he, he's going to set his people free. And so it's set up for this good dramatic story. And then the main uh, plot of it is, is this conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, which of course is really a conflict between the God of Moses and, and the gods of Egypt or the gods of Pharaoh. And you see God do these amazing things to show that, that the Egyptian gods, they've got nothing on him. He turns the Nile River into blood. He brings frogs and gnats and, and hailstorms and boils and, and darkness and all this stuff. It looks like creation is being undone to show that the creator God, Moses' God, is more powerful than anything that's going on in Egypt. So you get these amazing things. And finally, Pharaoh relents and lets God's people go. So they're traveling toward their new home. 
But the action's not done yet because Pharaoh changes his mind. He chases him down through the wilderness. He's got him trapped at the edge of the sea, nowhere to go. It looks like things are really bad now. And then God again acts. He separates the sea. The people go through on dry land. The sea comes crashing back down. And then that's the resolution, right? That's the point where God's people are now officially, finally set free. They can enjoy the rest of the story, kind of sit back a little bit and, and enjoy it. Now, if you're reading in the book of Exodus, you get to that point, and then you realize you're not even half done with the book of Exodus yet. So there's the exciting part, and that part has already happened, and it has already reached the climactic moment where they're free now, and then you get more than half of the book has left 20-some chapters of what we might consider the, the boring part, the, the less exciting part of the story. And as you look at this, you think, well, why would the author do that? Why would he spend so little comparable time on the exciting part and so much time on the part that we would consider less exciting? Well, actually, what we might consider the boring stuff of the book is really the culmination. It's actually what this is pointing to. So all of these stories at the beginning, these amazing things that God had done, they're actually setting the stage for this big moment. So for these people reading, this is the moment that they're actually waiting for. This is the exciting stuff uh, for them. And this is so important that there's chapters and chapters of detailed instructions for this worship space that God is instructing his people to make called the tabernacle. And it's so important that after giving five full chapters of detailed, in-depth study of what that looks like, it comes back to it and repeats all those details again at the end of the book. So imagine if we took the next five weeks to look in detail at all the different things happening in the tabernacle, and then after that five more weeks on top of it, repeating everything that we just talked about. Most of us, we're not going to stick around for that, right? Well, we're going to see, though, why this was so important for God's people. We'll do the whole thing in one week. Don't, don't get nervous. We'll do the whole thing in one week, but we're going to see why this is such a big deal, why so much space in Exodus is devoted to this thing, and then we're going to find out that it's actually really significant for us today, too. So grab a Bible, if you would. We're going to turn to Exodus chapter 25. That's where we're starting today. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't know where Exodus is, that's fine. Grab one from the pew rack. Exodus 25 is found on page 124 of the Pew Bibles. Now, all the preaching books that I've, I've read in my life, they, they say that in the introduction, you want to get people's attention and you, and you want them to have a reason uh, to listen. And I just told you that we're in the boring part of Exodus. So I think I'm doing my job here uh, this morning. I'm kind of using reverse psychology. You're going to see if I can dig myself out of the pit I just dug. Uh, so Exodus chapter 25, page 124 on the Pew Bibles. So first we're going to see what this whole thing of the tabernacle is about, and then we're going to see how it's actually pointing ahead to Jesus. So here's how this whole thing begins. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. So we see God uh, calling for a special offering, and, and this special offering is of really expensive stuff. So precious metals, expensive fabrics, jewel stones, high-quality building materials. 
And the purpose of it is in verses 8 and 9. They're to build this worship space called a tabernacle according to the pattern that God gives them. And then he says this, I will dwell among them. Now, if you are just trying to fly through the book of Exodus, it's really easy to miss that phrase, but it's really the point. God says, I will dwell among them. So this whole thing is really about God being present with his people. That's what this is about. So in the coming verses, then, God is going to give specific instructions for the furniture and the layout and all this kind of thing. So, for example, the next little section here is about something that's called the ark, this uh, kind of rectangular box. Listen to the specific instructions that he gives there. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. So in our measurements, it's just under four feet long and a little over two feet wide and high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the, top, the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Okay, now if we're honest, we're going to admit that for most of us, our eyes just glazed over. We don't know what's happening here. We don't know what cherubim are. We don't know why the measurements. We don't know why these specific regulations. And then we, we realize that there are actually five chapters of that kind of a level of detail. These are the dimensions. These are the materials. This is what it's supposed to be designed like and all this kind of stuff. And of course, there's a lot we could say about that, but I want to focus just on, on one little part there at the very end, because this is the big picture. God says that he is going to meet with his people. He's going to meet with Moses and give instructions for Israelites there. It's in verse 22 at the very end. So we could go into all this detail, but the bottom line is that God is going to be present with his people. And so for the next chapters, he, he describes in detail what this worship space is to look like, and then he turns to the people who are charged with upkeeping this worship space. So let's flip ahead a few chapters to chapter 28. We'll see just a few verses of what these, these priests, these people who are set apart for service, what they're all about. So this is Exodus 28, verse 1. Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters, there to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. So these are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So that's just kind of the, the overview of what these garments are to look like. And then as it gets into the text and the details of what it looks like, you've got this turban and a gold plate on the front. And, 
And there's a little part of me that's it's a little bit jealous. I mean, these priests, they get this special outfit, and you think, I, I mean, when I wake up on Sundays, I've got to think of what I'm going to wear, and I've got to pick up my own clothes. These guys, you could just, just slap that thing on, and they've got gold and, and jewels and all sorts of stuff. Like, I think I could probably rock one of those, right? You think I should try it out sometime? Like, the turban especially, the gold plate. Uh, but of course, the, the point's not at all that this is about fashion. The point is that these people are set apart for a special role by God. And that special role is, is further emphasized by this, this consecration ceremony that surrounds it as well. They have a seven-day consecration period where they are set apart for service to God. And then at the end of all of these instructions, we get another reminder of what this is all about. So chapter 29, verses 42 to 46. is talking about the, the offerings and the sacrifices that the priests are to give. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So again, we get a reiteration of this same point. This whole thing is about God being with his people. It's about him dwelling with them, being present with them. But of course, for us, this still makes us ask the question, well, that could be true, or apparently that's true, but, but why so elaborate? Why are these uh, specific instructions and detailed pictures of all this stuff. Why get into all of that? And here's where we have to kind of take a step back and, and understand the bigger story of the Bible. So if you wanted to paint with very broad strokes, you could see the Bible is kind of like in three acts. It's first God creating uh, the world and living in close relationship with, with it. And so think like the Garden of Eden. And then from there, Act 2, that close relationship being uh, broken because humans rebel against God and turn away from Him. So think of them eating the forbidden fruit. And then Act 3, God working to restore the intimate relationship with His creation. So the people over at the Bible Project use a, a great Venn diagram to show what this is about. And I, I love visual things, and I actually like Venn diagrams quite a bit. So we're going to use a Venn diagram to think about what this is all about. So there's, there's God's space where He is present. And the Bible talks about this as heaven, as God's kingdom, as eternal life. And then there is our space. And our space is known as this world or the present age. And at the very beginning, you see that, that God's space and our space are fully joined. They are overlapped. So heaven and earth are joined together and people get to experience God's presence. This is what we were created for and it's really, really good for everybody. But humans weren't content with that, and, and they ended up rebelling against God and choosing their own path. So basically, they're saying, we want our own world. And so what happens is these overlapping worlds then are separate. It's like they are separated out. Sin creates this separation. And then the main story of the Bible is God working to bring that relationship back together. And, and here at the tabernacle, we're talking about here, that's actually a tangible expression of this place where heaven meets earth. It's right there where the two are overlapping on the Venn diagram. The tabernacle then is a holy place where heaven meets earth. So that's what we're talking about when we say that God is present with his people. He is with them. Heaven is coming down and meeting earth. There's a holy place here. But the problem is that, that God is set apart. He is holy. He is, he is morally perfect. And we are not. We are flawed. We are imperfect. 
holiness is, is though a, a difficult concept for us, I think especially in our time, because we tend to think of God in, in very casual terms. So we think of God as our friend or our buddy. We think of him as maybe an indulgent uncle, that kind of a thing. So it's hard for us to think and, and really get our minds around what holiness is all about. So again, the, the people at Bible Project give a really helpful analogy. They say, think of holiness like, like the sun. So in our solar system, the, the sun is unique. There's nothing else like it. It is the source of life. It is powerful. So the sun is a really good thing. But what happens if you get too close to the sun? You're destroyed, right? If you tried to, to have a, a tour to the sun, go to the sun, you would just get annihilated somewhere along the way. you just burn up. And that can be a way of thinking about the holiness of God, too. So, so God is set apart. He is perfect. He is the source of life. He is powerful. And he is very good. But those who are imperfect cannot get too close to him or we'd be destroyed. That's what the holiness is about, of God is about. So all these instructions about this holy place and the space and the sacrifices and the priests, they're all a way really of, of God protecting us from being destroyed by his holiness. So they're sacrifices, they're, they're things that, that make it possible for us to enter into the presence of God. I mean, that's what this is about, right? The, the tabernacle is this symbolic meeting of heaven and earth with God making provision for us to actually be there without being destroyed. So the tabernacle is a really important thing for God's people. This is the space where they're now able to meet with God, to experience his presence, to worship him. It's hugely important for God's people. And you see later this, uh, this temporary tabernacle tent thing becomes the temple, and the temple becomes central to the, the identity of God's people. It's such an important part of their lives. But here's the thing. The tabernacle and the temple Neither of those is the ultimate reality. Both of those are pointing beyond themselves. So, so as we look at the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8 talks about the priests who served in the tabernacle, who served in the temple. This is what it says. Verse 5 of Hebrews 8. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So the tabernacle and even the temple, they are a shadow. They're pointing to the reality of, of heaven, where God is. They're, they're a model pointing up to that. So we can think of it like a, like a scale model of a building. I don't know if you've ever seen these. Uh, my, my family went to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and they had all these really elaborate 3D models of, of different uh, architectural things, stuff that Frank Lloyd Wright did, houses and other buildings. And, and it was really neat to be able to see them and, and to, to get a sense uh, from a different perspective of what they look like. And you get a visual picture of, of those things. Sometimes if someone's building a new building, they'll make this kind of model, and, and you'll be able to see, well, this is what that building is going to look like. But of course, when you, when you look at that model, you don't think that it's the real thing. You realize that it's representing something bigger than itself. You realize that it's pointing beyond it. And if you didn't realize that, if you thought that was the real thing, then it would seem really absurd. You'd walk up to it and think, well, this is too small for people to, to do anything. Like, what is this? Is this a, a center for ants? It's tiny. It's got to be much bigger. It's got to be like three times the size to be able to be big enough for humans. Like two people saw that movie. So the tabernacle is pointing beyond itself to something else. It's pointing to this heavenly reality that, that is beyond itself. It's this temporary kind of thing, pointing past. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, this is the cool part about it. In, in one of the biographies of Jesus' life uh, by a man named John, it talks about Jesus as the Word. 
And the word is this huge concept. There's lots of stuff we could talk about here. We're going to focus on just a narrow part of this. So Jesus as the word, he is God's son. He is in very nature God himself, with God from the very beginning. And here's what John 1 says about Jesus as the word. John 1:14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that statement that the Word became flesh and and made his dwelling among us, that's actually tied back to what we were just talking about with the tabernacle. It's actually a similar word. It's the same root word. So you could very awkwardly and woodenly translate it. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, Jesus himself is the new tabernacle. He is the place where heaven meets earth. He is this new holy place. And, And everywhere Jesus goes, he brings God's presence with him. So he's like the new tabernacle, the new temple. And Jesus actually uses that language of himself. In John 2, he refers to his own body as the temple. So we learn that, that Jesus is where heaven meets earth. That's what the incarnation is all about. It's God coming down to earth. So think again about that Venn diagram. Jesus is that point where heaven meets earth in him, in the person of Jesus. Now again, this is, this is all about God providing a way for people to be near him, to be in relationship with him. And now it's seen in the most personal form. Jesus brings God's presence to earth. He is the place where heaven and earth meets. But not only is he that point where God's presence comes to earth, but he also makes it possible for us to be in God's presence without being destroyed. Remember, we said that that God's holiness is like the sun. We can't get too close to it in our imperfection or we will be destroyed. And then the tabernacle had all of this elaborate system of, of priests and sacrifices so that people were able to approach God. Well, Jesus has become the new high priest for us, the final high priest, and he has become the new and better sacrifice for us. So again, the the book of Hebrews, we just looked at it a little bit. It says a whole bunch of things about how Jesus is the the better high priest and the better sacrifice. And he's pointing to the the heavenly reality of the tabernacle and the temple. Let's see just a picture of that. It says a whole bunch more. Let's just focus on on one part here. This is Hebrews 7.23. Now, there have been many priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So when when Jesus died on the cross, he did what what none of the sacrificial system, what none of the priests before him could do. He took on all of the sin and darkness that we have brought into the world, and he took all of the guilt that is ours as a result of our rebellion against God. He took it on himself, and he destroyed it forever. And what that means is that he actually makes us holy. So the Bible can even say that, that we, you and I, those who are followers of Jesus, are actually said to be like temples ourselves. It's an incredible statement that we are so united to Jesus that his perfect holiness is given to us. It is we are clothed in his holiness. And that means that we can actually stand in God's presence. 
What we're talking about here, these are huge concepts. Heaven meeting earth in the person of Jesus and us being so united to him that we can be said to be that same meeting of heaven and earth and to join in that through our union with Jesus. Heaven meeting earth. This is a huge concept. Now, I've heard a lot of talk recently about people wanting a sense of more, and particularly of the next generation coming up. So we want a transcendent kind of experience, something really big, something really powerful. We want to connect with something beyond ourselves. We want to connect with the supernatural. And there's something really positive and really important about that because it recognizes that we are created for something more. But it really matters where we look for that experience. See, see, what we're seeing here is, is that big deal thing, heaven meeting earth, this transcendent thing, is found in Jesus, and it's found only in Jesus. So the more that we are looking for, the power of heaven coming to transform earth, that is from Jesus himself. Now, for some of us, it's, it's hard to get excited about that because maybe we just are too familiar with the Christian faith. We're too familiar with the church and And it just seems so very common to us. And so it's easy for us to lose uh, the specialness of something because it's just so familiar and ordinary to us. Let me give you an example. Uh, When Emily Bauer uh, left her small hometown in Alaska to go to college in the big city of Chicago, she had uh, visions of of meeting uh, a flashy, handsome boy from the English department. She was leaving her small town, graduating with 30, 40 people, something like that, and going to the big city, and a whole new world of boys was going to open up to her. So she was excited about what that looked like. So when a nerdy boy from her hometown started showing interest, it kind of shattered her expectations of what this was all about. And so this nerdy boy from her hometown did not get the kind of attention that he was hoping he might be able to get. But in the end, she came to realize that it didn't matter if he wasn't really big and flashy, if it didn't matter if he wasn't you know, an English major or, or from the big city somewhere or from some other part of the world, and it was okay to have uh, someone uh, special from your, your hometown. It's kind of a weird illustration, I guess, because it's suggesting that I'm special. But nonetheless, we, we work well together, and so we've kind of discovered that. Um, but it was really easy for her, her to just totally dismiss me offhand because, well, she knew me. She grew up with me. She knew how nerdy I was as a little kid. She knew how nerdy I was currently. I couldn't hide anything from her because she already knew all that background stuff. It was very easy for her to just simply overlook me and not even give me a chance. She tried, but I persevered. So too, though, like as we're looking for something, something bigger, something more, this big transcendent thing, and, and then we hear that it's, it's Jesus. He's the one who brings heaven to earth. And, and for some of us, it's kind of a letdown, to be honest, because we think, okay, well, the church, I mean, it's, it's not big and sexy. It's not something new or exciting. It's, it's mundane. It's ordinary. We know all about the church. But it is the big thing. It is this huge transcendent thing that we were made to, to be able to participate in. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this might sound really strange. You might look around and think, okay, really? These people? I mean, they're, they're just ordinary people. I, I know these people. They're they're fine, but they're not like, you know, super fancy or anything like that. The Bible actually says that, that that's part of what gives God the glory. We have this amazing treasure, it says, in clay pots, ordinary things that you'd use in your everyday life. We could contextualize and say they're like Tupperware containers. We have it in, in ordinary things, people like you and me, to show that the specialness isn't human specialness. The specialness is from God himself. It's not because we've somehow figured it out. It's because of God and who he is. He is the bigger thing. So let me, let me challenge you if you're stuck on this. 
Don't overlook the power and the significance of this just because it's so very ordinary and normal and common, just because you're familiar with it. Don't miss how hugely significant this really is. And for followers of Jesus, I want to challenge you too. The challenge for us is don't settle. Don't think that this is a small thing. What we are invited to is a huge thing. Heaven meets earth, and we get to participate in that by being in Jesus. Heaven meets earth right here. The kingdom of God comes right here. And that means that in the the big storyline of the Bible, we're actually in the really exciting part right now. We're in the part right now where God is acting to restore this intimate relationship with creation where heaven meets earth, where they're joined together and the world is made right. And, And you and I know from looking around and experiencing the world that it's not fully there yet. We're not experiencing that kind of blessing. But when you look at the storyline of the Bible, you see that's actually where this is heading. The last two chapters of the Bible gives a picture of what this looks like. Listen to this in light of what we just said. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with him. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's the story that we get to participate in. That's where this is going. And we, we look around, and, and if we're discouraged or if we have anxiety or, or fear, any of that, we come back to this story and say, no, this is what is happening. Yes, the world is separated from God. Yes, sin has created this separation. But look at what God is doing right now to restore it. And in the end, we know that it will be fully integrated so that we will get to have our space in God's space. And we'll get to enjoy his presence and his provision and his protection forever. This is what we are created for. So as we look at this story of the tabernacle, we might, we might just disregard it. This is the boring part of the story. Let's just skip over all this stuff. But really, it's a reminder of, of God's heart for us and that he's providing a way for us to have a relationship with him, to be near him. It's a part of this huge story of what God is doing to restore the world. And you and I today get to point out the reality that the tabernacle is pointing to. Jesus himself came, and he is the embodiment of heaven on earth, and we are in him. So we get to tell everyone around us that Jesus came, that Jesus won, and that heaven meets earth in him, and where the story is going. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, understand that this is why we're so passionate about Jesus. We gather in in hope and in peace, and we celebrate with joy because the creator of the universe chose to not give up on us. He chose to not just leave this world alone, but he cared so much about us that he sent his own son to unite us to him so that we can experience life with him. Despite our failures, despite our weakness, despite our rebellion, he loved us and he chose us for himself. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate with such great joy. And this morning we have before us this this ceremony that Jesus gave us as a way of remembering that our life is in him. And that our life is always and only in him. It's a simple meal called the Lord's Supper. And what this is, is a proclamation of the death of Jesus on our behalf. So as we take this this little piece of bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. And as we take this little cup, 
we remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us. So we're coming back to the cross to remember that this is the great victory of God. And in union with him, we get to participate in this huge transcendent thing of heaven meeting earth. So we're going to ask as we take this meal together that God would use this again to unite us to Jesus, to help us see and know him, and that we would have life in him. So I'm going to ask the ushers and the worship team to come forward. We're going to pray that God would, would stir our hearts to again be united to Jesus.